Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is more of what you've become accustomed to. This is, at the very same time, totally unique. Thank you for being here, and thank you for giving me your kind attention. Uh, my name is Brad Listy, and I'm coming at you from an apartment in Los Angeles. How are you today? I hope you're doing well. I hope that uh, wherever you are, you are uh, at peace with your existence. And uh, speaking of existence, just moments ago, I was reflecting on my youth. I've been writing about this lately. And I don't want to say much more than that as a matter of superstition. I don't like talking about uh, a writing project that is potentially in process. I don't even know what it is yet. And so to uh, talk about it feels uh, a little unnecessary and potentially dangerous. So anyway, uh, I've been trying to go through my mind 
and dig out memories from my childhood. And I'm interested in what has stuck in my mind over the years. And uh, today, just a little while ago, I suddenly remembered being on the playground at my elementary school in suburban Milwaukee. And it was a sunny day, but uh, it was briskly cold, as it often is in Milwaukee. And I was with my friends, and I had uh, a ball in my hands. I was holding a ball, and it was one of those uh, inflatable rubber balls that you played with on the playground. Like, do you remember those? It seems like they only exist at elementary schools. Maybe junior high. But uh, the point is, I'm standing there holding uh, one of these balls, and there is a girl standing about 75 to 100 feet away. Approximately. A good distance away. And she was a new girl. And she was sort of butch. <laughs> uh, in retrospect, I'm, I'm thinking she was a lesbian. Which is sort of an odd thing to mention. But that's what occurs to me now as I reflect. And uh, I can't recall her name. What was her name? What was her name? Maybe it was Tracy. Anyway, she was a new kid, and her brother, she and her brother uh, and their family had moved to Wisconsin recently. And they had enrolled in my elementary school uh, in the middle of the year. And so this girl, Tracy, if that was her name, was a year older than I was. And her brother was my age. He was in my grade. And his name, I do recall, uh, it was Johnny. And uh, these were country people. They were That's how I remember them. <laughs> uh, you know, Johnny had a bit of a twang. They both had a bit of a twang. And uh, I want to say that their family had moved to Wisconsin from like Oklahoma or something. From the heartland deep in uh, the heartland. So there I am standing with my friends at recess and I'm like eight years old and one of my friends uh, dared me to punt the ball that I was holding in the direction of the new girl, Tracy. Uh, whose attention we clearly wanted for some reason. And, you know, like this is how this is how we handled ourselves back then. This is how little boys are. You don't go talk to her. You don't speak. You just punt a ball in her direction. <laughs> and the thing is, is that she was far enough away that it seemed like a harmless thing to do to me at the time and so I did it I punted the ball 
in her direction at the urging of my friends. And I hit her directly in the face. The ball sailed through the air in a high arc against a bright blue sky and came down and cracked this poor girl, this poor girl, like directly across the bridge of her nose. It was a direct hit. And so the girl immediately uh, doubled over and covered her face with her hands and she started sobbing. And then the girl uh, stood up and uh, looked uh, over at us and uh, I was standing there in shock and all of my friends were laughing and they pointed at me. And that's the story. That's pretty much it. (laughs) I got in trouble and more to the point, uh, her brother, uh, Johnny, approached me just moments later and threatened to beat me up which I found terrifying. And I remember I apologized and I explained to him that it was an accident, which was only half true. I mean, I did punt the ball in her direction with the, you know, in an attempt to hit her. I just never anticipated that I could actually do it, especially from that distance at that age. It was like a one in 500 shot. So having conjured this particular memory uh, earlier this afternoon, I then suddenly recalled uh, being in junior high just a few years later, 7th or 8th grade. And uh, this time I had a slingshot. An honest-to-God slingshot. Not homemade. You know, this wasn't like a Y-shaped stick with a rubber band. This was an industrial-strength Slingshot that you bought at like a, I don't know, like an Army Navy surplus store. So I was sitting out on our front porch uh, in the evening with my slingshot in Indiana, which makes me sound like Huckleberry Finn. It wasn't that, it's not like we lived in the sticks. You know, my family had moved to Indiana. Uh, to the suburbs of Indianapolis, and there was a crabapple tree out in front of our house. And I was shooting crabapples into the sky with my slingshot in this neighborhood, which was brand new at the time, if you can picture it. It was one of those new neighborhoods where all the trees in the neighborhood were, were baby trees because they had just been planted. So there was like no shade. It was odd, you know, it was brand new. And there were man-made ponds in the neighborhood. And uh, there was a pig farm (laughs) abutting the neighborhood. And so when the wind would blow in a certain direction, the neighborhood uh, smelled like pig feces. So I'm sitting there uh, with my slingshot and my little pile of crab apples and my little sister is that what they're called crab apples little berry like hard little berries and uh, i'm sitting there and my little sister erin is playing out in the street we lived in a cul-de-sac 
And Erin uh, was, you know, she is three years younger than I am. And back then she was probably in second grade. And so I take a crab apple and from a distance of about uh, 75 to 100 feet, I decide that I'm going to take a shot at my little sister. Thinking that there's no way I can actually hit her. Because, you know, crab apples are pretty light. And when you fire them with a slingshot, uh, they don't travel in a straight line. They sort of curve and uh, bend unpredictably. They have unpredictable flight patterns. So uh, imagine me sitting there uh, in the Indiana evening and I sort of casually take aim at my little sister uh, who's walking. She's a moving target. And uh, I fire a crab apple at my sister and the crab apple whizzes through the air and bends in an, in an arc and uh, winds up hitting my little sister as she walks mid-stride uh, I hit her directly in the ear and uh, she dropped to the pavement she crumpled to the to the pavement and wailed in agony and uh, I was horrified I was in shock and then started laughing because uh, I was nervous and my mother came outside and my sister uh, got up and walked over to her and was very red in the face and in pain and she had her hand over her ear There was now a welt on her ear, and uh, it was soon discovered that I was the culprit, and that, and you know, shortly thereafter, my slingshot was confiscated, and I felt uh, horrible. So, I don't know what, like, what interests me about these two stories aside from their unlikeliness, uh, is the fact that I don't think I've ever done anything similar on any other occasion, to the best of my knowledge. I don't think I've ever tried on another occasion to strike an unsuspecting human being with an object that could potentially harm them, aside from these two times. And both times I did try, I connected. I'm two for two. (laughs) So uh, I'm forced to ask myself, what does this mean? Because I'm not the kind of person who connects, generally speaking. You know? I feel like the lesson here is that I shouldn't shoot things at people. But uh, maybe on a more abstract level and a more benign level. And to bring this around to the realm of uh, literature and creativity, maybe the lesson is uh, you should take a shot at whatever it is you want to do 
in your life creatively because you never know you might hit what you're trying to hit and what you're trying to hit might then crumple to the ground in agony Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Matthew Savoka, and uh, today is his birthday, by the way. Happy birthday, Matthew. Uh, I'm posting your episode of this program today, June 16th, 2013, as a way of celebrating your existence. Uh, Matthew has a novel out. It's called, I don't know. I said, I like that title. It's a great title. And uh, the book is now available from publishing genius press. So here he is folks, the birthday boy, Mr. Matthew Savoka. And uh, his new novel once again is called, I don't know. I said, Uh, I'm in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia, which is where I grew up. And I'm actually in one of the bedrooms that I grew up in, in my parents' house. Oh, really? Okay. Like you're in your room room or just uh, in a bedroom? I'm in, well, I spent some time in this room and I spent some time in the room across the hall. It's like a Cape Cod. Okay. Okay. So at some point when I was a teenager, I lived in this bedroom, and I'm in here right now. Wow, okay. So uh, why did I think you, you live in Brooklyn too, though, correct? I do, I do. I um, I kind of split my time because uh, I work here. I work down in the, in the Philly suburbs. Uh, so I'm here, like, usually Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I'm in Brooklyn for the long weekend, like Friday through Monday. Oh, okay. And so, and what, and you're working, I mean, I read in your bio that you work construction. Is that what you're doing? I do. Yeah. I'm a carpenter. Yep. No shit. So how do you, I mean, so is this something that you like were taught as a young boy or is this something that you just have like a natural aptitude for? Because this is the kind of stuff that like, I have absolutely zero aptitude for. I'm terrible <laughs> at like putting things together, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it runs in the blood a little bit because both my, my grandparents, uh, well, I should say both my grandfathers, uh, it wasn't their jobs, but they did, you know, they did, you know, carpentry work around the house and they were always fixing stuff up at their houses and my parents' house. So I was always kind of tagging along and picking some stuff up there. 
but um, I worked for I worked in like a machine shop when I was a teenager because my, my dad ran a machine a machine shop. So like during my teenage years, I worked there, and I kind of worked with the maintenance guys. So I ended up picking up a lot of like maintenance fix it skills and construction type stuff, and it just kind of stuck. Yeah, well, no, but you were born. I mean, you're born to this. Come on, like I mean, working in a machine shop in high school, and well, like what kind of machine shop? What does that mean? Well, it's like a like a tool and die company. Um, so they make they make car parts for uh, for General Motors, or they did. They're out of business now. Okay. Um, but they made car parts for General Motors. So like they made a lot of like the little metal parts that that make the mechanism under your seat, so you can like slide it back and forth. Right, like all those little. They things. made like, yeah. Well, it's it's just like it's stuff like you think to yourself, or you don't think to yourself about the the fact that somebody had to make that piece. You just assume that totally. it, it just showed up. But there's somebody out there who spe- <laughs> who specializes in making the little latch under your seat that moves your seat. Exactly, exactly. And so they have they have these big these big dies which are like cookie cutters which are built to like have the shape in it. But then they they load it into a giant two thousand ton press, and it's and they send all this pressure down as they put a piece of, you know, metal coil through, and it basically stamps out a part like a cookie cutter. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. And I, 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 there's a building going up across the street from where we live, and uh, I look at the guys out there building the thing every day, and I'm, I'm always, like, thinking to myself, and this is, you know, uh, a small a small scale construction. It's an apartment building or whatever or some, like, yeah. townhouses. but. Um, I look at that and then I look at like the new world trade center or whatever that's going up. And it's like, what's the first thing you do? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like where, yeah. do you, where, where do you yeah. start? It's like, we're okay. We're going to build a skyscraper guys. Let's go. Like, what do you yeah. do? Like, what's the first thing? I mean, it's just that like, there's a, there's an intellectual element yeah. to construction and to carpentry that totally eludes me. And I'm, I'm fascinated by like people who have that aptitude and i guess like a way for us to tie this back into something literary would be to ask if you know anything that you have in terms of carpentry skills um has served you well in terms of writing you know like i think of the way that you see you know you might structure a book or you might approach the structuring of a book like do you ever think to yourself like i'm laying the foundation now or you know is that actually it's kind of the opposite in the sense that i don't i don't write things in a very deliberate sort of structured way at all. I don't really work with like a sort of a process or like a, like I don't sit down every day at whatever o'clock, like a lot of people do, you know? Um, and so, it, I mean, in the construction biz, like I like to tell people we have this saying that goes mess less, which it means to say, you know, just you got it pretty close. Don't mess with it. You know, just you, you're done. Bam. There it is. So, I think I took that to writing actually to sort of mess less with stuff, you know? So I'm, I'm kind of like more, I don't know if you want to call it raw or whatever, but well, no, it's interesting that you say that because there's, you know, there's something in that that rings, uh, rings true to me, or at least resonates with my particular view of what I like in literature. And, you know, you hear so often, especially in, you know, books about writing or in classes that deal with how to write, um, you know, in an academic environment or elsewhere that you're supposed to be, you know, this incredible perfectionist and you're supposed to write 65 drafts of everything you do 
And, right. and, and you know what, for that, for some people, I guess that does work, but, uh, just today, uh, randomly I was reading online and I, uh, I was looking at something and there was a link to a quote from Jack Kerouac or an essay about Jack Kerouac. And he was talking, you know, this is back in the day in the fifties or whatever. And he yeah. was, he was talking about this very thing in his process and how, you know, all of this time that he had spent trying to write, you know, quote unquote, formal fiction in the, tra- yeah. in the tradition of his predecessors, uh, you know, had wrung all of the feeling out of his work and, yeah, yeah. you know, and I sort of feel that way as well. Like I, and I, I don't know if I've spoken of it on this show before or if I've written about it somewhere, but, um, I know I've said it many times that like, I can find myself far more emotionally affected by a comment on a comment board, uh, you know, yeah, I know what you mean. than I can by like, you know, the average novel that's being put out. Um, totally. And and I don't mean to to bash, you know, novels, you know, that are being published today across, <laughs> across the across the board. I don't want to I don't want to paint too broadly because there's a lot of work that does affect me emotionally. But what I'm trying to yeah. say, what I'm trying to say is that like I I think it's I think going for that that feeling and knowing when you have it and knowing when to step away uh is is an art and it's a wise thing because you don't want a piece of fiction or any piece of art to feel overwrought or to be ruined by noodling too much. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think Kerouac eventually adopted the the theory that he called I think he called it like first word, best word or something. So like eventually he just started not editing anything at all. So whatever he thought of to say first, he considered that the best thing. I'm not quite that far, but um you know, I do like to edit and change things around, but I, I, I get where he's coming from. I do too. And it's like, it's, it's dangerous too. I mean, cause you get like, you know, I don't know when first word, best word came to him or when he stopped wanting to edit his work, but it might've coincided yeah. with when he started to drink himself into oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> probably, editing, probably. editing work yeah. is bad enough as it is, but like with a bad hand, yeah. it's not happening. So, <laughs> exactly. you know, but that, that's the thing is that you're trying to strike this equilibrium in between, um, you, you know, neurotic over noodling and laziness, you know? And yeah, definitely. You, you sort of have to be honest enough with yourself to know which is which for you. Yeah. And I mean, I like to say, I always like to tell people when they ask about editing or whatever that like, I don't know when I write something out and, and I'm kind of happy with it. And then I go back to edit it. Like I make it worse first, you know? Like when I edit it, like I'm I, I'm just messing it up by accident because I don't really know what I'm doing. But then if I like work it that long enough, eventually I'll get back to it being good and then a little better. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It gets dangerous to get back in there and to start tinkering because totally. You know, and like what? Ugh, I, what was it? Like, I think Norman Mailer. And I feel precious quoting all these like you know famous writers. <laughs> this is how I. This is how you learn, right? You you read these guys to figure out what they did. But I remember him saying, yeah. that his favorite uh, mo- like mode or mood to write in was like with a slight bummer. I think he called it. Yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. Like you that. need you need to be kind of like dispassionate, just like slightly depressed. You know? Yeah, yeah. If you're super depressed, it's not you know everything's going to look like shit, and you're going to want to cut everything. Yeah. And if you're like super giddy at the other end of the spectrum, then, you know, then it's going to get really ugly. So yeah, that's not good for anybody. No, no. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not a good formula. So, no. so you say that you don't have like a, a, like any kind of like regimented regular writing schedule, but like how much writing, yeah. how much writing are you doing in a week in an average week? 
Oh, it, it really varies a lot. Like it could be, I mean, I don't know. I just, I just kind of wait for it to get, get in, in my soul or whatever you want to call it. And then I go to it. So, I mean, it, it could be, it could be a lot, you know, to like, you know, a couple hours every day, or it could be, you know, months that I don't even do anything at all. Okay. See, that's, that's refreshing though, because like, it doesn't sound like you're tortured by it in the way that so many of us, and I'm not talking about myself. I'm not talking about myself, <laughs> but in the way that a lot of writers are, you know, where you feel this internal pressure to kind of sit down every day. Otherwise you're like a failure. Yeah. You sort of let it come to you. Yeah. I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I mostly do it for fun. I mean, because I like to, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to win the man booker or whatever. So I, you know, if I were, I probably would sit down every day and write out some slop. But, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, tell stories that I like to tell as they come to me. And, and that's what I enjoy doing. And then what about like your course of study in terms of learning how to write? Like, you know, you, you it sounds like you were maybe self-taught or did you go to school for this and, and really study literature in an academic setting? No, I, I didn't study literature at all. Um I, I got a business degree, actually, and then I was like, I mean, business degrees kind of suck, so I was like, I'll just be a carpenter. Um, so I, I didn't study. Where did you go to school? I went to uh, I went to a small um, Christian college, actually, called Messiah College in the middle of Pennsylvania, which was a mistake, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> Messiah College? Yeah, yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, well, you know, Jesus was a carpenter, so I'm starting to yeah, I'm starting to connect yep. these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So, okay, so you got a business degree, but then you were like, this is not for me. I'm going to just go into carpentry. Uh, yeah. And then yep. at what point did writing become part of the equation? I think probably I didn't really care about writing until or my early 20s, so maybe like 22 or 23, and I was like I didn't even really read up until I was like 20 because I, I played sports. I played ice hockey when I was a teenager and I was really into ice hockey and I did, you know, I practiced and played all the time. I didn't really read. I didn't really care about that stuff. And then kind of after high school, you're not really quite good enough to play ice hockey anymore. So I started doing other stuff and then I started getting into books and it was mostly, at that point it was mostly like the Russians like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And those guys really got me into, I wanted to start writing. And then I kind of, out of that, started writing and then reading more and writing more and just having fun with it. Yeah, I know. Because it's, like, it's funny. Like whenever I read somebody, like it's always fun to try to tease out what their influences are based on what's on the page. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's a hit and miss. Like you don't always get it right, uh, you know, or you don't get it 100% right. But I find I find that it's pretty easy to tell if somebody's read a lot based on how they write, you know, and that's, yeah, yeah. that's certainly the case with you. I feel like, I don't know, you can feel, I feel when a work is kind of rooted and I can kind of sense what tradition it's working out of or something like that, you know? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I know. It's, I definitely have read a lot and, but it was mostly, I would say from age like 21 on, I really didn't read much before that. And then I just started, I don't know what, I don't even know what happened, but I just started reading books and, yeah, so tons like, and tons of books. So, like, nothing bad happened to you that started you reading? No. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I don't know if I was just, like, maybe it was just, like, existential crisis of being a 20-year-old, but... Yeah, like, I gotta do something. I gotta, I gotta confront. 
Yeah, exactly. Or you're, you're like, for the first time, you're kind of thinking like, oh, like, what's the point of stuff? So then you, you know, you find like Dostoevsky, you know, stories, which are just amazing. Like, have you ever read that story, The Dream of a Ridiculous Man? No. Uh. Uh-uh. You should read that story. It's really great. Okay. And the Russians. Anyway, yeah. Why the Russians? I don't know. I don't know what ha- I think. I just. I think I was at a used bookstore and I was looking in the classics and I found Dostoevsky's, um, uh, what's it called? The underground notes from the underground notes from the notes from the underground. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that for like two bucks and I was like, this sounds cool. And it was like a picture (laughs) of a guy like peering out a basement window on the cover. And I was like, this looks cool. (laughs) And I loved it. So I just kind of went from there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, you know, maybe it's the hockey and the, like the Russians. I feel like Russia, the Russians sort of appeal to a young male. <laughs> but this, but there's like there's something to this. I've argued this over and over again. It's like the Hemingway thing. Like there are certain yeah. writers. Like I think for young hetero males who might have kind of a sensitive bent, um, you know, when you read these like male writers that are a little bit more, I don't know, macho or manly than some of the others. It gives you permission to access that stuff, maybe, especially when you're like early adulthood or late adolescence or whatever. I think there's something to that, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, I definitely see what you're saying. I was really into Hemingway too, like right around the same time. I got real into Hemingway, so there's definitely something to that, like these sort of super privileged, rich white dudes who write stuff. Which describes like a lot, like you know, an, an unusual percentage of literary history. It seems like, unfortunately, unfortunately, it does. Yeah. So okay. So you start reading. You start writing. Uh, were you pretty bad at the beginning, or was this something that you felt like, you know, I don't know if if, if the the actual process of writing for you sounds like a lot less painful than it is for some of us? Was the apprenticeship less painful too? Um, I was pretty bad at first. Like I was really. I mean, I was mostly trying to imitate, I think, until I got sort of a feel for it, you know, stuff I liked. But, yeah, I, I, I would say if I look back on it now, it, it was pretty bad. I've always kind of liked the sort of sort of a more raw, almost confessional style. And so you can imagine, like, starting out in that, and you're young and stupid, <laughs> and you really nothing has happened to you ever. So it's, it can get really bad. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then, you know, melodrama creeps in quickly, and exactly. And um, you know, I would say I remember that I have this one line of this of this stupid story I wrote from like just ten years ago or something, and just abandoned completely. But I remember this one line that like haunts me in my head all the time, and it was like it goes, "Ted rattled down the thirteen basement steps," and like that's just <laughs> oh, it's so awful, right? <laughs> It's not even that bad, but yeah, I get it, you know. <laughs> this stuff tortures Like, I us. think about it, it haunts me all the time, this one sentence I wrote. <laughs> well, no, but sometimes you can write stuff that's so bad, and, you know, you, you walk away from the manuscript, or, you know, the the file is buried in, like, your folder on your computer desktop, and then for some reason you call it up and you look at it, and it's like... You you don't even know who wrote it. It's so you know. Oh, exactly. <laughs> that happened to me, that happens to me a lot. Yeah, a lot. So, okay. So with your new novel, um, uh, you know, did you, you know, you said you didn't do a ton of revision and so you would work in these bursts of inspiration for a day, two days, three days, a week, whatever it is. 
Yeah. Is that correct? And then like, and then what did it look like? You'd write in this burst and then the next day you would go back over it or would you, you know? Yeah. Well, actually for that book, I mean, I was pretty much writing almost every day for a couple of months because it was just, I don't know, it was just in me. So that was, that was just happening, but it wasn't on purpose. It wasn't like time to write now. It was all different times of day whenever it hit me. And I was like, Ooh, yeah. And I would go and sit down and boom, work for however long I felt it. Yeah. And so, and then that was about two months. And then how, I mean, this is such a common question, but like how much autobiography is in your work? Like it seems to hew pretty close to the bone, but like how much of it is pure invention in your view? And then how much of it do you think you're lifting directly from personal experience? Well, I would say like a lot of the, I mean, a lot of it comes directly from my life, but the thing is it comes from all manner of things that have happened over a long time that I kind of smooshed together to make something worth reading, you know? Sure. So it's not, it's not really like, you know, situation by situation in a row, but it's like one thing that struck me in this, this thing I went through, you know, whatever, however many years ago. And then it's like, I just kind of push a lot of stuff together or like in this book, for example, I don't know. I said, there's, there's a lot of, you know, half the book is like a road trip and really it's, it's road trips I really took, but it's more like three different road trips all kind of smashed into one and then kind of put together so that it makes sense. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's common. I think it's common to uh, like amalgamate, uh, experience, but also to amalgamate characters. Like a lot of times characters in fiction will be, you know, combinations of people and it's, Definitely. it's rarely just Definitely. like, a, it's rarely just a one for one. I don't think that there are very many people that you meet in your life and they can be very, you know, very good people, but there are very few people who are, who are like one-off characters. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Like most, for of, sure. most people need a little bit of embellishment to live on the page in a good way. Yeah. It's usually, usually some kind of a, a combination and I think, and I think, like dialogue works the same way. Like I think a lot of the dialogue that I write is rooted in actual conversations, but then I kind of smush things together and make it take a little turn that maybe I wish it had, or something like that, or sure. a turn I wish it, you know, I wouldn't have liked it to have taken just for you know. I think dialogue wanting to do that. I think dialogue's the most fun to write. It's the easiest for me. Oh, me too. Like, yeah, uh, I love it. So, and there's like a real musicality. Um, to your prose like i feel like there's a lot of music in it like a, and then uh, you know photos of you online you have a very distinct look you have the hair which is much discussed uh in <laughs> online form so do you have a musical background do you play any instruments i actually don't i mean i wish i when i was in i think when i was 16 17 i tried to take guitar lessons from like this old burnout rock star guy from the 60s but i just didn't really didn't really work but i always I always wanted to play music and I like to, you know, screw around with instruments um, just for fun, but I, I can't really play. I wish I could play the piano, violin. Stuff, but yeah, I can't. I'm the same way. I took, uh, I took bongo lessons in college for credit. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in Boulder. Well, that's funny though, because like I, I do have like a strange, a natural ability to keep a beat. Like I can just always, I don't know. Like I always just have some beat I'm tapping out on my legs. I don't know where it comes from. Are you a good dancer? No, horrible dancer, but I, I can 
hear the beat. <laughs> I can hear. I don't know what to do with it, but I can hear it. I don't exactly. That's exactly it. Are you? But I mean, like, are you inhibited? Uh, like, I'm. I'm picturing you. Like, you, know, you look sort of uninhibited, like a free spirit. Or, you know. But are you like somebody who you know, will dance? Or are you sitting on the sidelines, like playing the drums on your legs? Uh, I think more often than not, I'm pretty much kind of sitting in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless I'm drunk. If I'm drunk, then I'll just do whatever. Yeah. But more often than not, I, I tend to be the person sort of sitting in, on the side, yeah, that's looking around. It's hard, you know. Like I feel, I feel really self-conscious. Like there was a, uh, my sister got married not too long ago, and you know, of course, there's dancing at the wedding. Oh yeah. And my daughter, uh, like at, she's two and a half. So at one point we were out there, and it's very cute, you know. She was a flower girl. And she wanted, um, she wanted to dance with me. So of course I'm dancing with my kid. And then yeah. at, at some point she's like, I want a piggyback ride, but she's really small. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, and everyone's like having dinner. Cause it was like a sit down dinner, but then people would get up to dance and then I'm crouched down in my tuxedo and she's like trying to climb on my back. And then <laughs> I, I couldn't stand up all the way because if I stood up all the way, there was a chance that she could fall. So I was sort of like, yeah, hun- yeah. I was like hunchbacked. And then I was trying to like, <laughs> And so, of course, all of this got caught like on film and video. And <laughs> That's great. It's like, yeah, it's a fucking nightmare for me, though. I look, you know, just, it's like the, it's the last thing I want to see of myself is me like in a hunchback dancing <laughs> situation. Oh man, that's too funny. Yeah, it was bad. So, yeah, I would, I would feel exactly the same way. I would feel the same way. Okay, well, it's glad it's good to know we have that in common. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so childhood. You said you're from the suburbs of Philly. Yeah, yep. And, and, uh, my my parents grew up in Philly, and then they kind of, when it was time for kids to go to school, they moved us out to the suburbs. Okay, and um, like parents together, like siblings, like your dad, you said ran a machine shop. Do you know? Yeah, my. Go ahead. I was going to say, do you know where your writing, uh, where your writing gene comes from? Like, do you have a, a like one of your parents is super literary in any way? Not at all. Not at all. My my parents are together. I got two brothers, one older, one younger. Um, nobody nobody writes at all. And and you know, really my, my parents were kind of inner city, you know, Italian Catholics who, you know, both of them barely graduated high school. So it's you know, there's not a very long history of high levels of, you know, education in my family, if you want to call it. So, yeah, like that. so like, you're the middle child. Like I'm the, I'm the middle child I am. and I'm sort of like, I mean, in whatever way that I can be a freak, I'm sort of the freak of my family. Like, are you like, are your brother, Definitely. are your brothers like totally different and you're sort of the, the free spirit in the middle? Is that the way that it played out? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. My, my older brother has a, has a wife and a little two year old and he's got a house and he's like a, you know, computer engineer whatever guy stuff and my younger brother has a wife and a kid and he he drives a truck for a thrift thrift store but they're both kind of pretty much straight down the line yeah okay and then you said you went to messiah college (laughs) i did yeah (laughs) tell me take us to the campus of messiah college like what is that like it's it's like this tiny it's this i think there were maybe like 3,000 students or something. It's this tiny little liberal arts college in the middle of Pennsylvania, like near Harrisburg. And uh, it's just, you know, it's just like a Christian school. 
Um, I grew up, you know, I grew up Christian. Okay, so how super religious was your upbringing? Uh, pretty, pretty, you know, it was pretty strongly rooted in, uh, you know, Christian religion. <clears throat> like, um, you said you were Catholic. Well, no, my parents, my parents grew up Catholic, and then they kind of, they kind of moved to, um, into, <clears throat> sorry, they kind of moved into, uh, I guess you call it Protestantism, but basically when they were in their twenties, they, they kind of founded a church with some, some young friends of theirs. There's like five or six families. And so it's like a non-denominational sort of Jesus Bible centered church. Interesting. And, and I grew up in that. Okay. So I can, but see, I can sort of trace a literary line here. Like people who have any, I mean, not that your parents necessarily, I mean, if they started a church, I guess they have some sort of like uh preacher in them or some sort of you know right yeah well, yeah well i think at first it was kind of like it was kind of started as like a bible study sort of thing and uh, like they just met as like a small group because they all went to this bigger church and then they kind of didn't really like the stuff that was going on in the church so you know there was like five or six young families and i think they they were just like well we should just meet on our own so it was that kind of thing and then it slowly grew into becoming like you know, then they got a building, and then it became like a thing. So now they have a church. There's probably maybe 200 people that go there. Wow! And who does like the sermons and stuff? Do they take turns, or? Well, no, they have. Yeah, there's now they have like a staff. You know, now it's grown into like you know a real small church with a staff, and so they have like a youth pastor, and they have like they have like a teaching team of people who, you know, come in and do their different sermons from week to week, and then they have like a little worship group where they do their sort of contemporary rock Christian songs. Okay. And was this a positive experience for you or was this something that you had like a, a backlash against when you got older? Um, it was pretty positive. I mean, I, you know, I didn't really have a backlash against it, but at some point I was kind of like, yeah, it's not for me. And your and what were your folks cool with it? Or were they like disappointed that you didn't tell the line? Well, yeah, it never really, it never really happened. Kind of, sort of all played out like that. It was more just slowly over time, you know. It's a sort of veered a different way, and you know, they're they're cool with, they're cool with whatever. It's like basically, like the more you started to look like Jesus, the less interested you became in him, essentially. <laughs> I actually wouldn't say that. I would, I would, I actually, I like Jesus a lot. Yeah, I think he's a cool dude. I, I the the more I grew to look like Jesus, the less interested I became in the church. I would say that. There you go. That's a, and then you know what? That's sort of the way I feel. I think like, uh, and I wish there were more contemporary literature about Jesus that tried to cut through the static because yeah, I get so yeah. I get so fed up with the static that I you know I sort of feel like you sometimes turn away from the guy who, uh, by all accounts, seemed like a pretty cool dude and probably was, you know, uh, Definitely. A, a really cool person. So, and I know that you're a big fan. I mean, I, I've read, uh, interviews with you where you're talking about like reading Ecclesiastes, like, you know, with the, yeah. kind of, with the kind of like literary fandom, um, as opposed yeah, to like a, a religious fandom. So, you know, you're, you're pretty well versed, you know, like uh, there are a lot of Christian people or people of Christian backgrounds who, have read like not word one of the Bible, including those who claim it to be the central like document of their lives. <laughs> definitely, definitely, and that's and that's you know one of the main problems with the church really is that I mean they're they're absolutely I mean they're crazy they're nothing like like Jesus at all so 
Yeah, it's disappointing. I, you know, like, and I feel yeah. like I feel like too. Um, you know, not to veer off too too far into the realm of religion, but it's like, you know, it does have something to do with literature, I guess, at the level of interpretation. It's it's just that, like the the interpreters, the people charged with interpretation. Yeah, are, are often doing such a shoddy job, and it's like, oh, I know, it's so blatant. You just, I mean, I guess maybe it makes me wonder if, like, people who, um, you know, are writing books, the you know, in a literary vein or in a, in a vein that's maybe a little bit more, what's the word, open-minded, whatever. You know, people who could do the job in a more effective way, but aren't engaging for whatever reason. Like, maybe it would be good if some people took that challenge on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think so. I think it's tough, you know, because people, it's like, you know, when it comes to religion, it's like, you know, it's like religion and politics, you don't talk about it at the dinner table or whatever. It's like it's people try to, I think people try to veer away a lot of the times from that, you know, for fear of whatever, causing trouble, or, or when it comes to writing, for fear of, you know, people being like, oh, man, he's some kind of Jesus freak. Or podcasting, you know, you feel like, I just feel like when you get into that realm, people put the, you know, their defenses naturally come up, but. Yeah, yeah, and I, fair enough. I mean, I can understand some of the people, I mean, the church has done a lot of horrible things to a lot of groups of people, you know, including, you know, all women and pretty much anyone who isn't you and me, Brad Listy. <laughs> <laughs> so I can understand a lot of the natural defenses for sure, and I don't blame them one bit. Yeah, but I'm and I'm I'm talking when I say natural defenses, I I don't mean just people who have been wronged by the church, but I just mean generally people with that sort of subject matter for whatever whatever their point of view might be oh, yeah. tend to sort of yeah. re- either recoil or just fall into like a, a defensive crouch reflexively. And, yeah, definitely. Know, I never got it though. I, I've never felt like those things should be off limits in conversation. Like I think we should talk about them more. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think there's plenty. There's plenty of good times when it should happen. There, I think there are definitely some times when it might help to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. You got to pick your moments. So, you you got to pick. Yeah, your totally. Well, and, and you have to pick your words. You have to choose your words very carefully, you know, like the emotional content of what you say. Like, definitely. this is something I think about a lot, like not only from a writing perspective, but like when I do this show, you know, it's like a, it's word choice and it's happening in the moment when I'm doing the interviews or when I'm doing, uh, the monologues, which have a little bit of prep to them, but you know, it's mostly yeah. just riffing, but it's like, how, how do you say stuff? Like you have to be mindful of what you're saying. Uh, and it's, it's important. Like you can, you can really fuck someone up with words, you know? <laughs> oh, you can. It's, yeah. It's very important. It's very important. And you know, it's, especially when you come from a position of sort of social power, you know, it's, you have to be extra careful. Yeah, social power, or just like you know, intimate relationships. You know, you just yeah, parenthood, all these different things. Like language really matters at that level. And um, Ben Marcus just flashed through my head because I think he wrote he, the Flame Alphabet. I talked to him about. He wrote a whole book about this, essentially, or a whole novel based on that theme. Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just it's it's fascinating stuff. And uh, I'm I'm curious to know, like, have you ever thought about or considered the idea of writing anything with an explicitly religious theme, or you know, any? Kind well, of- actually, yeah. I mean, I have been I have been thinking a lot lately about <clears throat> um, something that I want to write that I'm not sure how you know it'll play out because it sort of has to just come to me and, and the idea is slowly kind of developing, but basically like 
I want to write some kind of uh, autobiography of my life in the church sort of thing. Yeah. Like, give me some highlights. Like, was there any, did you ever like speak in tongues or anything like that? Or did you ever have like... Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I, 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 I think of it as like a much more mundane thing where like, I'm interested in just telling sort of the day to day sort of, you know, what it was like, you know, it's like being five years old and asking Jesus to come into my heart type of thing and having no idea what that meant, but knowing that my mom was happy. <laughs> right, right. And... And then, you know, up through being like a, you know, an adolescent and a, and a teenager and all the stuff that happens in youth group and, you know, all that, that youth group is such a weird thing. Man. Oh God, dude. Yeah. CCD. We used to play Ouija board at my CCD class. <laughs> 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 this lady, I forget. I think her name was Mrs. Cunningham. I can't remember. I mean, how apple, <laughs> it's like so apple pie, like Midwest, but like we'd, yeah. we'd sit in her, ba- we'd sit in her basement and I shit you not. Like there was like, you know, her kids, she had grown kids and there was like a Ouija board set like on the show. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But you know, those, those, uh, I don't know. It, it sounds to me, and like when you say autobiography, like are you do you mean it in in um, the classic sense? Are you talking about a memoir, or is there some distinction? No, I think I think to me there's a distinction because I mean I think a memoir a memoir is like like my three years skywriting or whatever, right? You know, and and I think of an autobiography as something like just just more sort of telling your stories. And and that's how that's how I want to do it. Where it's like it's almost like, you know, if I'm come over to your house for dinner and we get to talking and the conversation goes to growing up and I tell you a handful of stories that happened to you know to me in youth group or whatever. That's the kind of stuff I would write down and put together in a book that's sort of like more more large scale a scope of what I how I experienced the church. Sure. Yeah. And like okay, so it, it begs the question uh, for me anyway. Like where where did it leave you spiritually or where are you at spiritually now? Because it sounds like you're still engaged with these ideas or at least these interests, but you're no longer interested in um, pursuing it within the context of the church. So you, yeah, I mean, I I don't think about it too much. I mean, I, I, you know, I like to read the Bible sometimes and I like Ecclesiastes a lot and, you know, some cool Testament stuff. I like to read, you know, a lot of the stuff that Jesus said, and I like to read about his life, you know, but I don't know. I don't really, you know, I don't like pray or anything. I don't go to church. I don't really have a sort of spiritual life, but I I do kind of like the stories, if you say it that way. Okay. Yeah. Because like, I was imagining this autobiography as, you know, in, like in an almost like ironic way as being a story of spiritual awakening told in the context of you growing up in the church and then eventually sort of leaving it. But maybe that's not the same vision that you have. Um, I don't, I don't think I was thinking of it, um, with sort of like with that kind of, uh, tone or message, I guess might be the word. I, it was more just like, I like, I liked what I'm interested in lately in writing is, is just sort of telling my stories, my everyday stories, you know, and just kind of writing them down on the paper and, grouping them in into a book in a way where they're kind of they kind of flow through and become something together that's like you know more than just hearing the stories each one yeah well no and there's like a you know it's it's like that prismatic approach or that episodic approach um to storytelling whether it's fiction or nonfiction. but 
I really, yeah. I really respond to like, you know, I often really respond to work that is presented in short bursts. Um, because I think that's the way increasingly we actually experience life. And it's certainly the way that, yeah. I, it's certainly the way that I experience life in retrospect, you know, memory is just nothing but fragments. So, uh, totally. you know, yeah. I don't know. That's why it's something I really like. And it sounds like, you know, and based on, uh, the novel and it's, and based on what you just said about the autobiography, it sounds like you're of a similar ilk. For sure. Definitely. I, I like, I definitely like, uh, like how you said it, but, um, well, yeah, I mean, actually, I have I have an autobiography of sorts coming out um, next year. Oh, really? And it, it's in this kind of manner, and it's it's called "Why I Hate Nature," <laughs> and and it's sort of it's sort of an autobiography of like, I guess you could say like uh, terrible things, sort of. It's sort of like all the all the terrible stories, you know, like my dogs dying and this and that, and sort of kind of all put together. Um, you know, including, uh, you know, a lot of the stories about my grandparents and, and their deaths. I guess there's a lot of death. In <laughs> sure. And, and it kind of goes, you know, up through up to age 30, sort of, um, just kind of my stories. Do you feel like it has, I mean, do you feel like it has any kind of closure narrative arc that would be considered traditional or is it, I mean, do you know what I'm saying? I feel like I'm speaking like an editor at a publishing house or something now, like where's the closure or... Did you feel I don't I don't know. I think I think to me there there really kind of isn't any. It's just sort of like it's just sort of like um well, I don't know. I mean, to me I actually feels really nice to sort of have this manuscript and sort of see all my stories that I like to tell people down there together and be like, "Wow, this actually kind of adds up to something. I don't know what it is, but it feels like something." Yeah, well, it's like the whole thing about you know memoir or autobiography or, or a novel, whatever. It's like you have to take what's the, the you know the word journey or whatever. You know, you have to take yeah. you have to take yeah. the reader somewhere. But you know, th- I think you can. I think there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat, and it, whether or oh, not, definitely. whether yeah. or not whether or not something is is uh, effective, whether or not a piece of writing is effective, I think comes down to what we started out talking about, and that's emotion. Like if you deliver an emotional experience, um, you know, then whether or not the thing hits every single plot point perfectly and, you know, has, yeah. some, has some sort of neat and tidy resolution is, is sort of beside the point. Yeah, definitely. So, and you also mentioned, you know, that a lot of it has to do with death, which I find, uh, interesting because I think that death shadows so much art, you know, I think it, so much of our creative impulse is is born from confrontations with mortality where we witness the, you know, the deaths of people or pets or whatever, um, you know, that we know, or it's the, you know, the kind of lurking, uh, or the impending nature of our own mortality, which is coming sooner or later. And, you know, when I, when I look, when I think about my own life and I've been thinking about this with respect to my own work, um, you know, coincidentally is that, you know, I really do feel like the deaths in my life have formed me, you know, whatever, you know, the, the big deaths, you know, and I think that most people yeah. are like that, but did you have, did you have any kind of like unusual number of confrontations as a young person? Did you have any kind of like, you know, traumatic losses or anything that formed you or that you really, uh, st- I mean, yeah, I don't know if they're traumatic, but, but I mean, I definitely, I mean, 
I definitely took it hard. Um, I had three dogs die, and I definitely took it real hard each time from, you know, from when I was maybe eight, it was a family dog, and then I got another dog, and, you know, maybe eight years later, he died, and then another dog, and it's like, I took those really hard, and, um, and when my grandfather, I was really close with my grandfather in high school, and he died, it was, he was pretty old, and it was natural causes, and we knew it was coming, so it was kind of like a normal um, I don't know what I mean by normal. It was kind of like, it wasn't sudden or like anything. You, you know, you kind of knew it was coming and what, what are natural causes? What does that mean? <laughs> I guess, I mean, I don't know. He was like, I guess that's what they used to say. Maybe now they know more. I guess that's what they used to call like, like when they didn't know what, like, uh, <clears throat> they didn't know what cancer, a lot of cancers were, or, he just died in his sleep. So whatever you call that, I guess they call that natural causes. I don't really know what actually happened. That seems like a nice way to go, you know. Yeah. Good. Yeah, he was asleep for like 3 days and that was it. That was it. Okay. Well, that's yeah. That's 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 enviable, you know, compared to some ways. Yeah. Um, but you know, But I did have some strange some strange sort of experiences with death when I was younger, which I mean, they weren't like really traumatic to me, but I had like I had like three classmates die in strange accidents and they weren't like kids I, I liked or cared about, but it was just kind of weird to see it happen when you're 14. Yeah, no, that's kind of, that's similar to me. Like I had a lot of these things happen like on the periphery of my life and like thankfully never in my immediate family or anything like knock on wood. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, it's like you, when you're young or it doesn't matter really what age you are, but I think especially when you're young and you're still kind of trying to assemble, uh, your concept of it and your emotional equipment is still sort of developing or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it affects you. It's like, Holy shit. You know, like definitely someone died. You know? Yeah, <laughs> sounds, exactly. You know, like it's like this, it's this, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 I, I don't think in a way, I think young people are more adept at processing this stuff. And then there's other parts of me that think that they have no idea how to process it, but, do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes there's like a yeah. the, the genius of children in like grieving or whatever. Definitely. They do it all intuitively, and then old you know the older we get, the the less intuitive and the more kind of bumbling. Yeah, you, you make it so complicated, full of stuff. But yeah, so I think you, that's why it can be harder with pets sometimes because it's just so simple. Like you just love your dog. Yeah. No. And that was it. You never once hated your dog. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, when I lost my dog Merlin. uh you know, what was this? It was like, the, it was so weird because he was a, a border collie. He's a, sh you know, sheepdog. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Like a herding dog. And I got him when I was 20. And uh, he stayed with me all throughout my 20s, which I essentially spent trying to write a novel. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he died the day before my book release. So he, oh, my gosh. So he like herded me. <laughs> and he, he herded you exactly. And he was like, my job is done. Yeah. I'm checking out. I'm not even kidding. But that, like, I was a, I was a wreck. Wow. I was a, I was a, a puddle when he died. I really was close. I hiked the Appalachian Trail with that dog. It was like, it was an intense. The whole thing? Uh, half of it. We did a thousand miles together. So. Oh man, I've always wanted to, to through hike the AT. Yeah, it's you know, it's I, I, I sort of want to do it later in my life, or like one. Yeah. Like, either that or the PCT, but like it's something I want to do again because. Yeah. I don't think I've done anything that compares in terms of like the the bigness of the experience like that was a totally that was big i still think you know it's all like most of my best stories like the most interesting things i can tell anyone come from that experience it seems like that's 
That's awesome. I love that you did that. I love anyone I meet who's into the AT. Yeah. Hiking it. It's, That's cool. It's a... Uh... It's I've not, section hike a lot, a lot of parts of it, but I can never, I can never get the, the timing right with the money to to do it. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like it's a six month, it's a six month adventure. But, you know, back when I did it, what did they used to say? You could, you could theoretically do it for like twenty five hundred bucks. Um, yeah, and I think it's double that now. Yeah, at least, and you know what? That's a yeah. That's conservative because, like, you that's like, like you know, when you get to town, you just like get your food and then go right back out. But like. Exactly. You want to take a shower and like get a motel room sometimes. You know? like, yeah, yeah. And uh, now like all the all the gear you gotta buy first and all that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, so anyway, like um, you know, when it comes to uh, you know the the spiritual stuff, uh, just to kind of finish it out, like I do remember reading something with you where you were talking about how you spent like a couple years really into Zen. Um, is that true? First of all, and then second of all, like a couple of years, it sounds finite. Like you're the meaning you're no longer into it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's true. And I think, I mean, I am into Zen, just not really, I mean, I think what it was, what I meant when I said that was sort of like, I spent a couple of years learning what it was kind of. And so because I was sort of learning, like, what is this Zen thing? Then I was really into it, and now, like, I like it, but I kind of know what it is, and I'm a little less sort of, like, you know, way in there. Right. So there's no, like, you know, you're not, are you doing, like, any kind of, like, uh, yoga or meditation practice or anything like that? Is there any way that it's actually, like, put into practice in your life? No, I don't I don't really do anything deliberately, I think. So I, I don't really have, like, practices of stuff. So, I mean, I think, you know, like... I honestly, one of my favorite things to do to like sort of de-stress or whatever you want to call it is I'll just zone out and stare at a wall. And I pretty much think that's meditation. Well, sure. No, I, I've always joked that smoking is meditation. It just involves, yeah. four, it just involves 4,000 chemicals, you know, that are toxic. Definitely. And you know what? There's like this, this, like this age old story where like this, there's this, there's this, you know, sort of this guy's in the Zen he goes up to like this, you know, old monk who's living on some mountain and he gets up there all excited to be like, you know, doing his, his sort of, um, Zen thing where it's, what do you call it? Where you like deny yourself stuff? Um, um, whatever that is. A retreat. I don't know. Yeah. And, um, and he gets there and the old Zen master is sitting there smoking, chain smoking and he's like, "What are you? What are you doing? You're you're smoking cigarettes." And he says something like, "You don't smoke cigarettes." And he's like, "No, I mean we're we're Zen monks." And he's like, "If the you know if there's no smoking cigarettes, then what is there?" And the the guy just like sort of goes away off the mountain, completely confused. But <laughs> that's just a funny little. Well, no, man, like Chogyam Trungpa, who like was one of the first or most important. Uh you know, Zen teachers, like Tibetan Buddhism teachers from the East to come to the States. I think he taught like Allen Ginsberg and those guys, but he was like, a, yeah, he, was like a ra- yeah. he was like a raging alcoholic. You know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, totally. But, but apparently, oh, you know, he also taught like uh, Pema Chodron, you know, so like, yeah, yeah, like he's got this whole, funny. this whole like strange lineage, but it's just like this weird quirk. And I think a lot of people, yeah. a lot of people wrestle with that, but it just goes to show like there's no, it's not an exact science and there's not. Yeah, exactly. Know, so uh, when it comes to contemporary literature, yeah, it comes to you know your contemporaries and people who are making books today. Um, like you know, is there a particular 
like, are you, do you look at like Altlet and say like, this is my community? Uh, do you have a sense of community or of belonging to anything? Or do you feel like you're operating kind of like in your own orbit? Um, yeah, I mean, I like, like the Altlet kids are all behind me. I'm, I'm, I'm almost 31. I mean, they're all pretty much 10 years younger than me. So are they like, how does the age, I don't even know how the age works. I'm, I'm like fascinated by all this stuff, but very clueless when it comes down to like the, the, the details. I think they're all in their early twenties. And, and I mean, some of them, I meet a lot of them, you know, being in, in Brooklyn and some, some of them I really like, you know, like Spencer Madsen is really cool. And he runs sorry house sure. press. He just started. He's a, he's a great guy. I think he's only 20. And he's so young, and when I was twenty, I was like, I was like, what? Yeah, Tolstoy, <laughs> and like he's twenty, and he's like putting out cool books. So I don't know. Yeah, no. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't really identify closely with that group. I guess I feel more like more connected to the like two thousand seven, two thousand six group of of when like all those sort of sort of like in in the Kowlin heyday of the internet and like you know, all the writers that were around then. It's just kind of like when Blake Butler was coming up and Shane Jones. And um, I'm more more into that community, like Matthew Simmons and Kendra Grant Malone. And, who has been, know, who has been the, on this show? And like, like we should say, just for the sake of uh, disclosure, you guys are in a relationship. I learned that when I was, true. Talk, I was talking to her. So <laughs> That is true. And, uh, yeah, so it's kind of that whole, that whole crowd that I feel more more Daniel Bailey, Sam Pink, all those guys sort of feel like we all almost came up together. But were you, were Ken you, were you uh, invested in uh, community online? Like, how did you find all these guys? Yeah, definitely. I was, I was pretty, I was pretty heavy into the community. I, I forget how I got into it, but I think it was 2006. I just started Googling stuff and found like the Alice Blue review and like some other sort of online you know, poetry and fiction stuff. And then I found like Taolin and Ellen Kennedy, who's still one of my favorites. Isn't it funny? And, uh, isn't it funny how Google can change, like can change your world? <laughs> I mean, oh, totally. I don't want to, totally. do, I don't want to do a commercial for Google, but like, you're not the first writer I've talked about who describes their entree to, um, a particular literary community or a particularly literary tradition or pursuit. And it's like, yeah, I just Googled, you know, Exactly. And you stumble into something. It's the way the world works. Yeah, now. I stumbled into it, and I feel like a lot of people did around the same time. And then we just sort of started blogs, and it was like at that point it was like on Blogspot, and it was like keep it, you know, keeping track of like four little poems you had published in some, you know, some website that fifty people looked at, and everyone's like really proud to list, you know, the ten things on their sidebar, and you know, it's sort of. Everybody became friends through, you know, all sort of being on the same little websites and kind of grew out of that. And I still keep in touch with a lot of those, I mean, a lot you, of those guys. Well, and you also, you should have proximity to quite a few of them in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There's some people around and... Um, Do you see... I mean, like, this is the question, though. Like, you know, obviously there's a big literary community in Brooklyn. Obviously a lot of the writers who live in Brooklyn are interacting online. But, like, how much... Uh, in real life interaction is there? I mean, there's, there's, I know of like groups of writers that are always hanging out and like always going like dancing and like, who? They're always, <laughs> I want to talk to them. <laughs> I mean, there's like, like, um, 
there's like Ben Fama and and sort of a group of like Brooklyn poets that are always like hanging out and at least it seems like to me like it seems like they're always hanging out doing like stuff on town. Um, but I don't really I don't really see them that. I'll see people at readings here and there, but for the most part. I'll go months without seeing anyone else, really. Yeah, it's it's sort of funny to imagine. Like, it's a good visual of like a group of writers going out regularly dancing. <laughs> I probably, I it's exactly what I picture too, and I picture specific people there, and I probably have it all wrong. But like, I'm sitting at home, like thinking about it, and I'm, and I'm like, what the heck are they doing? And they're probably sitting at home doing the same thing, thinking I'm out dancing, but I'm not. I feel like that should be like a, a like a web a web series like webisodes just like <laughs> called group called group of writers dancing like just regularly <laughs> just take a, a group of young Brooklyn poets and like take them to like various clubs. Yeah, yeah, it would be hilarious. I think some some of them do it on a semi regular basis. At least what I hear through the grapevine, but I don't really know what's really going on. Yeah, and I, you know, it sounds similar to the Los Angeles literary scene, where it's just like you know, you see people at readings essentially, and yeah, yeah, they happen regularly enough that you get your time. And um, I, I always feel like I, I think it's I, I sort of wish that the divide between the internet and actual human interaction was bridged more often, you know, because I feel like there's a lot of you know how there's just like logistical hassles to going out and you you have to get on the train or yeah. I have to drive across yeah. town. But when it actually happens, it's sort of, it's usually pretty nice. You're like, oh, you're like why? I always say to myself, why don't I do this more often? <laughs> you know? Oh, I know exactly what you're saying. It's like, you gotta, you gotta get yourself out of the house. And then, you know, once you do, you're kind of happy you went out. And... <clears throat> but I mean, I, I definitely have formed a lot of really good relationships with people that I see, you know, based online. Like I, like I hang out with uh, Giancarlo Di Trapano yeah. in New York. Yeah, we hang out. We like to go to movies together. And um, and Scott McClanahan's become a good friend. Obviously, Kendra. I mean, she's become my best friend. Did you meet her online? And that, that was all. Yeah, we met online years ago, just as part of the crew, and we were just friends and sort of writing buddies and sending stuff back and forth to each other. And then uh, you know, eventually we met, and that was kind of. Yeah. That was it. Okay. Yeah, that's not, you know, that's, yeah. that's not that uncommon. And I find that I find that uh when you know somebody quote unquote know somebody online and you have enough interaction with them, it's very rarely a surprise when you meet them. In in in, yeah, in a good definitely. way. In a good way. Like it, like the internet is actually effective if it's used, you know, decently well enough at giving you an idea of who the person is. Like I've I think it is. I think it is. Yeah, I mean, very. I don't. I can't think of any experience where, like, I've you know met somebody online and had like significant interaction with them, and then met them and been like, "Holy shit! Like, who is this freak?" You know, like, yeah, that's totally. Never, that's never happened. So I'm not not to say that it can't happen, but I just I can't recall. You know. Yeah, I think for the most part, it's pretty. It's pretty honest. It's pretty much what it's like. So. Yeah. Well, depending on who you're talking to, I guess. I guess so. I mean, for me, I have the same experience as you. Like most of the people I've met. I'm like, yep, I expected that kid to be totally crazy. And like, yep, I expected I would like this person. <laughs> right. And that person that you expected to be crazy turned out to be completely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it sounds like you have like a good system set up. Like you have your carpentry day job that pays the bills. 
And, uh, yep. you know, and then you've got the writing thing kind of compartmentalized or you, you've got it figured out. Like, it's not like you're counting on it to be your, uh, your bread and you're not putting in like obscene pressure on yourself to win some major literary award. You're, you're genuinely doing it for fun. Um, exactly. do, you, do you feel situated? Like, is this your track going forward or do you have like in your head, like I need to stop the carpentry at some point. I want to, I want to be an actor. Like, do you have anything like that in the back of yeah. your head? Not really. I mean, I feel I feel pretty. I would say I feel pretty situated, but at the same time, I honestly take things week to week. Like I really don't look much past what I got to do next week and what next week looks like for me at work and what I feel like doing. And I really don't look to the future much at all. So I could I could be happy continuing doing carpentry. I just kind of go with the flow stuff, you know. This sounds, for a while, I, for a while, I thought I wanted to to be a, a wildlife like rescue technician. What does that do? What does that mean? Like, what does that entail? You just work like in a you work like in a refuge center, and you you just like help like bats with broken wings and stuff. Oh, okay, yeah, I could see that. <clears throat> it sounds sort of zen. This approach, not looking too far into the future and going with the flow, you know. Yeah, definitely, definitely, it definitely comes out of my sort of self-education in that okay and then you said you have the autobiography coming out in um what next year and then are yeah you... i think it's going to be like christmas time more or less maybe a couple months later or something and then i forgive me if you already said this but are you working on the the autobiography related to your religious upbringing or is that something that's still in the like con, you know conceptual phase it's still pretty much in the conceptual phase i mean i've i've written down a few scraps you know, almost sort of like notes to myself, just like, oh, remember you had this thought about this, and then we'll see if it goes somewhere or not, but I hope it does. Wow. Well, uh, I wish you well with it. And, Thank uh, you. It's been uh, it's been great talking with you. This has been interesting, and I congratulate you on the new novel and wish you luck on, uh, on these future projects. Thanks. I had a great time talking with you. You're an easy guy to talk to. Oh, well, I try to be. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy. Thanks, you too. All right, folks, there you have it. That is Matthew Savoca. Go get his novel. It's really good. It's called I Don't Know I Said. It is available now in print and ebook editions from Publishing Genius Press. You can find Matthew online at matthewsavoca.com. You can find him on the Twitter where his handle is at M-T-T-H-W-S-V-C. Just, just Google it or uh, search for him on Twitter. He's there. Uh, thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And I should mention that those uh, ambient, 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 or ambient, those ambient songs during the front end of the show, the, uh, the first one was from a band called The American Dollar, and the track is called Starscapes. The second one is from a band called Caspian, and the track is called Sycamore. And the third one is from a band called This Will Destroy You. And the track is called Black Dunes. So go get those. And uh, hey, be sure to rate and review this podcast over at iTunes if you think of it. Please do that. Please. Por favor. Uh, if you like the show. It takes two minutes and it really does help the cause. Don't forget to check out thenervousbreakdown.com. That is my online culture magazine and literary community. 
thenervousbreakdown.com. And don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app, available now for your uh, iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can favorite your favorite episodes. Uh, You can download episodes to listen to offline. And you can also access uh, the full archives and premium content via the app. So go get it if you haven't done that yet. It's free. Uh, Okay. Uh, Otherwise, you know, take a shot at what you want to hit. That was a reach. I realize that was a reach. Take a shot. But don't take a shot at another human being. Even if you're taking a shot with an inflatable rubber ball or a crab apple. Uh, Also, I made a mistake at the top of the show. My little sister is four years younger than I am, not three. So I got to make that correction. That's the kind of thing I would get in trouble for uh, in my family. Please remember that uh, Polybius died after a fall from a horse at the age of 82, and that Paul Verlaine died in an apartment building on the Rue de Carte. That is it for now. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks to Matthew Savoca. Uh, once again, go get his book. It's called I Don't Know I Said. Happy birthday, Matthew. Uh, I hope you have some cake. All right, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> 